This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So this is the Saturday talk on the 6th of November. It's the uh, third in the series of talks on Buddha nature. And the title of today's talk is the integration of Zen and psychotherapy. So I'd like to thank everybody uh, to begin with for your participation in the Dharma talks on this retreat and the Dharma discussions. Every teacher of Zen remains a student of Zen and teaching, as you know, is a great way to learn. Your questions and your comments and your challenges enable me to continue to develop and enrich my own understanding of the Dharma. So I thank you for that and uh, keep it going. Keep questioning. The koan for today is very simple. It's a, um, a contemporary koan from a quotation from Shunru Suzuki, the great Japanese Zen master of the 20th century that did so much to bring and plant Zen in the soil of our Western culture. And he only, only he was only active for a, uh, a very, I think, 10 years, maybe or 11 years in the United States and created a wonderful organization of Soto Zen that spread all across the world. <clears throat> so the koan is, each of you is perfect the way you are and you can use a little improvement. Each of you is perfect the way you are, and you can use a little improvement. In many ways, that little statement of koan kind of like captures the essence of today's discussion, how we integrate the profound realization of Zen Buddhism not just Zen Buddhism, but other great spiritual traditions too, in the inherent perfection of all things, our Buddha nature. And the fact that we have these difficulties that we all get caught up in. So as we said the other day, enlightenment is not enough. And our ordinary mind Zen school is founded upon this realization. It was the disappointment and delusionment and heartbreak of discovering Mazumi Roche's behaviors that led to Joko Beck forming the ordinary mind Zen school. And very few Zen masters 
had received transmission in both the Soto school, the Rinzai school, and the Zambo school, as Mazumi had. He was a fully realized, experienced Zen teacher. We could not hope to surpass him in that way. Yet, he still had these difficulties with alcohol and sexuality. Hence the need for psychotherapy, or if not psychotherapy, a psychologically informed Zen practice and a psychologically informed Zen teacher, which is what Barry Majid calls his ordinary mind Zendo, psychologically informed Zen. There are a few psychotherapists here today, and a few of you also may have been in psychotherapy yourselves or some form of counseling or therapy. So at the end of my talk today, I'd really like to encourage you all to share your own experience and your own thoughts about this, not just about what I'm talking about today, because it's a huge topic. There's no way I'll be able to cover everything, but really interesting to see what your own views are on this. Yesterday I mentioned uh, Ken Wilber's um, uh, work on his uh, concept of the, or the idea of the fourth turning in Buddhism. And by the fourth turning, he means a far greater kind of integration than just bringing psychotherapy into Zen, but we're just focusing on that aspect of it today. I also mentioned the previous day about how we live in a very materialistic culture where they um, compared to some of those civilizations that existed thousand years ago or 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago that discovered all these amazing things about, a, about the spirit, about spirituality, about our true self. And how that's quite dwindled away in our culture. There's also been a significant decline in the West in the participation in traditional religions. People tend not to attend church anymore. It's kind of grown irrelevant. One of the reasons why Wilbur Rohde's book is about trying to reinvent a religion with these, these great traditions, these great perennial understandings that we have to try and reinvigorate uh, the practice of religion in this, in this particular time. And many people in our times will not describe themselves as, will tend to describe themselves as spiritual rather than religious. So there's a huge amount of people out there who describe themselves as spiritual, not religious. So there's still a seeking, there's still a searching which is going on. With this decline, decline in traditional religion, we have also at the same time seen an enormous expansion in psychotherapy and counseling service, services to some extent, a medicalization of, of our culture. In fact, the supply can't cope with the demand. 
for counselling and psychotherapy in this country at the moment and may well be the case in other countries. So rather than going to the priest, as one may have done 50 years ago, people now go to see a counsellor or a therapist. <clears throat> the other interesting thing about this development is that over the past 20 to 30 years, there's been a huge increase in mindfulness-informed psychotherapy and uh, even non-dual modes of psychotherapy. So it's interesting the ways in which Buddhism, for example, reappears in the form of counseling and psychotherapy in both the cognitive therapy traditions, as well as in the psychodynamic traditions, and as well as in the family therapy traditions. So Joko Beck, our, the founder of our school, wasn't a psychotherapist. However, I'm not even sure if she was ever a client of counselling. I don't think she was. Um, but because of her own experiences of her own, in her own life, um, her first marriage, um, her husband had pretty severe mental health problems. She had, I can't remember now how many children, three or four children. She was a sole mother after the separation. And uh, so obviously she went through her own psychological growth and development in that respect. And then, of course, having to deal with the disillusionment of a teacher that she would have idealized and coping with the that trauma of um, someone who one idealizes turning out not quite to be the person you thought they were. And uh, I hope I don't do that too many times to my students. I'm a pretty ordinary fellow, actually, with lots of um, common issues. So please don't idealize me too much. Otherwise, I'll only disappoint you. <laughs> However, I'll promise I'll do my best not to engage in inappropriate practices as a teacher. So in the recommended chapter called A Bigger Container from Joko's first book, I recommended that chapter because it's a nice summary of her teaching philosophy in one chapter. It gives you a feeling of how Joko worked psychologically with her students. The work, of course, in Joko's teaching is always founded upon Zazen, but she brings in the emotional dimension. She brings in the relationship dimension. One of the first Zen teachers to start to do that. You will never get that if you go to see a Japanese teacher teaching Zen. And the container that she's talking about is the observing self. Again, the observing self is something which is often talked about in psychotherapy as well. So you can see immediately the connection between the two. The observing self in a way, and building the observing self and cultivating the observing self is the bridge between the Zen practice that Joko taught and the Zen and the psychotherapy. So 
strong emotions are contained within that container. These days in trauma therapy, people often speak of the window of tolerance. So that's building and the same with the, 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 the observing self, the idea of building a bigger and bigger window of tolerance for intense emotions that one can actually step back from and allow ourselves to experience in a safe place. So strong emotions are contained within the container. And Joko tends to break emotions down into two parts. It's a little bit simplified, but it's, it's, it's quite a nice teaching. So she breaks down emotions into thoughts and body sensations. And she basically recommends two practices. The first one she called thought labeling, which allows us when we give a name, a label to a thought, such as having the thought, how come um, that didn't work out? Whatever the thought might be, you basically try and reiterate the thought as you're practicing. Having the thought, what will I do next summer for my studies? Or having the thought, Jesus, Mary, Mary's a real bitch. So she recommended labeling thoughts for a certain period of time, not for the whole period or duration of Zazen, but you might label your thoughts for five minutes. And you might label your thoughts throughout the day. And over time, as you label thoughts, especially common thoughts, you know, if one worries a lot about certain things, you'll start to identify the common things one worries about. You can label those worrying about not having enough money, worrying about how am I going to get on with my manager? And you start to get a sense of which those thoughts are. And then in a lot of her teachings, she implies perhaps underneath those thoughts are some core beliefs, which connects as well with the psychotherapy tradition, whether it's CBT orientated in terms of what's the core belief under the thought, you know, the core belief being, you know, I'm not good enough, for example, which we picked up from our childhood and schooling. Um, and the, the core beliefs in, 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 psycho, in, in psychodynamic psychotherapy too, which they sometimes use different names for. Sometimes these core beliefs, we can, we can be aware of them and sometimes they may operate outside of our conscious awareness. So again, that's another connection between Zen and psychotherapy and Joko's work. The other practice she would recommend apart from the thought labeling was what she called experiencing. What she meant by experiencing was being one with the body sensations of the emotion <coughs> in exactly the same way that we, when we practice being one with the breath, if you're just following the breath in Zazen, eventually the, the thought I am following the breath might just fall away and you're simply just being one with the breath or being one with Mu, like we talked about yesterday. The same Joko encouraged us to actually practice that way with anger or anxiety or fear. 
try and label the, 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 the thoughts and then come to the direct experience of the body sensations. So when you're practicing in that way, it's very much like the, uh, the, the sutra that we talked about yesterday, the, the Bahia Sutra. The idea of in the hearing, there's just the hearing. In the seeing, there's just the seeing. In the sensations, there's just the sensations. And that's one method of non-dual practice or non-separation. And Joko was always quite fond of pointing out too that this observer that we're talking about the witness awareness is not itself a thing or an object we've been talking about that a lot over the past couple of days the observer is not a thing it's not an object you can't see it you can't touch it but it's who we are and eventually at times even the observer self collapses and the thin veil of separation lifts and we are what Joko used to like calling just the wonder. So just to conclude on the, uh, I'll move on from Joko, I'll just leave Joko with a quote from her in her own words from that particular chapter. So this practice of making a bigger container is essentially spiritual because it is essentially nothing at all. A bigger container isn't a thing. Awareness is not a thing. The witness is not a thing or a person. There is not somebody witnessing. Nevertheless, that which can witness my mind and body must be other than my mind and body. If I can observe my mind and body in an angry state, who is this I that observes? It shows me that I am other than my anger, bigger than my anger. And this knowledge enables me to build a bigger container, to grow. So what must be increased is the ability to observe. What we observe is always secondary. It isn't important that we are upset. What is important is the ability to observe the upset. And as we're building that window of tolerance of increasing the container, our practice is at the edges of that container. And the markers of being at the edge of that are our upsets. When we get upset, when we get angry, when we get frightened, that's where our practice is on those edges. That's the, that's the border of there are limits. That's where, we, we're, that's where we, we're getting limited. We're touching on the edge. Barry used to say, always practice on that edge of your tolerance. And then you build and you build a bigger container and it keeps on building and building until eventually it starts to dissolve into the big mind, which has no boundaries. Okay, so that's Joko. Took us on this pathway into integrating Zen and psychotherapy. I won't go into very much detail about Barry Majid other than to encourage you all to read his books. Um, but I'll just give you one quote from his paper called Sitting Together, a conceptual and clinical integration of psychoanalysis and Zen. Before you do that, Andrew, could you just repeat what you said about Barry 
always says something. Practice on that edge of your toilet. Practice on the edge. Yeah, okay. Thank you. So this is Barry's words about um, these two traditions that he brings together. He doesn't necessarily introduce any extra techniques into his psychotherapy practice, but the way in which he thinks about practice and the way he thinks about psychotherapy come together in his mind as a practitioner. So Barry says, <clears throat> meditation can produce profound experiences of self-acceptance and help develop capacities for empathy, compassion, and affect regulation, emotional regulation, that may parallel or even go beyond what psychoanalysis has traditionally been able to offer. Yet the two traditions formulate the problem and offer their respective solutions from fundamentally different perspectives. In order to highlight that basic difference, we could begin by saying that we all face two challenges in accepting who we truly are. The first is to accept our vulnerabilities and all those parts of ourselves about which we have grown up feeling shameful, guilty or in denial. So that's what Cam Wilbur would call the growing up part of our work. The second challenge is in grasping our intrinsic wholeness or perfection. So that's what uh, we would call the waking up part of our work. While each has found ways of engaging with both perspectives, Western psychotherapy has traditionally been more focused on the first and Buddhism on the second. Western psychodynamic psychotherapy analyzes those aspects of the personality that are obstacles to happiness, such as difficulties in attachment, lack of self-esteem, inhibition of one's desires or sense of agency, unlinked or conflicting self-states, a sense of badness or failures in recognition. All of these have been formulated as obstacles to development or growth, to growing up. Buddhism, on the other hand, has foregrounded the realization of perfection, accessing a self-state of deep acceptance of life as it is, an acceptance not contingent on the vicissitudes of loss or gain in any ordinary sense. The kinds of metaphors that Barry likes to use when he's talking about what I might describe as Buddha nature or uh, simply the self is a sense of nothing missing, nothing lacking. So you can see how the koan that I gave at the beginning you're perfect as you are and you could do with a little it's a sense in which they're the two aspects the perfect as you are is our realization of 
self in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism. And the and you could do with a little of improvement. It's all about the personal growth, all the ways in which we're fixated or stuck in various phases of our development. And we're all stuck in various phases of our development, depending upon the family of origin, the culture, our experiences at school, adolescence, etc., etc. Okay, now I just want to move back to Buddhist theory um, before I move on to talking about a, a model of psychotherapy which originates in the family therapy tradition, which I'm going to talk about as a, another example of how therapy can be integrated with Zen. Before I do that, there's been a lot of scholarship and research coming out over the past 20 years um, on Buddha nature theory, what they call Tathagata Gaba theory. Tathagata is the is another name for the Buddha, the, the one thus come. And Gaba gets it, it, it interpreted in different ways. It could be the womb or the embryo or the seed. Now, I didn't mention this yesterday, but there are actually different interpretations of Buddha nature in the sutras. These are the Mahayana Sutras that came to China and influenced Chan. Um, and uh, there are quite a few of them, some of which have only been recently translated. So in one particular interpretation of Buddha nature, there's a distinction that's made between what's called the Dharmakaya, the, the reality body of the Buddha, and Buddha nature. So these two teachings, there are it says in the there are two teachings that are difficult to understand. The mind that is intrinsically pure is difficult to understand, and that the mind is defiled by afflictions. Sometimes they use the word obscurations, obscurations. So in some Buddha nature theory. Buddha nature is interpreted as being that which is obscured as distinct from the Dharmakaya, which is the pure, luminous, empty, radiant reality body of the Buddha, which is perfect and not obscured. So to illustrate that with a, I hope you can sort of see this it's a cover of a book on the Tathagata Gaba Sutras. You see how the Buddha face is coming out from behind, kind of like what it was obscured behind, right? It's like they the defilements that are obscuring the Buddha nature. Hence, we can understand in a different way sometimes that monk's question yesterday, does a dog have Buddha nature? Do I have Buddha nature? Because from that kind of perspective, most of us don't feel as if we are Buddhas. Um, the, the, the monk is, you know, who we are really, the monk is saying, I don't feel I'm Buddha, I don't realize my Buddha nature. 
So this particular teaching of Buddha nature is pointing to Buddha nature as a potential that's within the monk that has to be actualized. And that's where practice comes in. So that's a kind of interesting theory that um, can fit into this uh, next model of therapy I'm going to talk about. One other theoretical point as well in all these non-dual teachings, and this is not just in Buddhist philosophy, but it goes back to Greek philosophy, um, the Upanishads philosophy, the Avaita philosophy. It's this relationship between the one and the many. It's trying to understand how we integrate the many within the one and how we integrate the one within the many. So in Taoism, the Tao is the one or the source and there's the 10,000 things. Um, in Buddhism, we talk about the essential and the contingent. Um, and one can realize the essential underlying unity of both the one and the many. Because every individual little shell, for example, is a perfect expression of the oneness and perfection of everything. And it's a very similar idea when it comes to thinking in terms of macrocosms and microcosms. So in a way, each one of us, each one of our minds is kind of like a little bit of a microcosm of the big mind and the many. So in a sense, if you think of the one mind, and then the one mind is, is kind of like um, participated in by these seven billion other minds on the planet. But even within one person, within my mind or your mind, there's a similar thing going on. And uh, the relationship between what we could call the one self within us and the many different parts. So one of the contemporary therapy models that kind of addresses this, I mean, psychoanalysis addresses this too in different ways, but I'll just focus on this particular model. Remember, too, these are just models. Um, so it's called internal family systems theory. It's developed by a family therapist called Richard Swartz. And um, it's, it's basically a synthesis of three paradigms that he, he, he worked out and put together and developed the theory and practice for. The first paradigm is the normal multiplicity of the mind. The mind has many parts. Richard Schwartz is not the first to discover that in the West, of course. We go back, like Elizabeth would know, to Gurdjieff, who talked about many eyes. You can go back to um, Carl Jung, who talked about complexes. Um, so, um, for example, in 1935, uh, Jung des des described a complex 
as having the tendency to form a little personality of itself. It has a sort of body, a certain amount of its own physiology. It can upset the stomach. It upsets the breathing. It disturbs the heart. In short, it behaves like a partial personality. I hold that our personal unconscious consists of an indefinite because unknown number of complexes or fragmentary personalities. And then you had one of uh, a young Jun called Asaglioli who developed a similar theory and so on through ego state psychology and voice dialogue. We have a number of, um, and then psychoanalysis in, embraces multiplicity and people like Bromberg and others have talked, have spoken extensively on that. So the notion is we don't just have a multiplicity of parts or cells or cell states. It's normal for people to have them. And uh, it's not just something that's experienced in dissociation, which is a more severe form of that. So in structural dissociation, when you meet someone who have been severely traumatized and they actually have distinct personalities or parts uh, which don't even know each other, and uh, that's a quite a severe end of the spectrum of it. But most of us, we quite commonly say to ourselves, well, a part of me wants to give up drinking, but another part of me doesn't. A part of me wants to get up this morning and do Zen. Another part of me wants to say, oh, fuck the Zen, right? So we, we're all quite used to talking in terms of this kind of parts language. So it's, it's very helpful. Um, it's also another way of avoiding to totalize the self or our our partners you know when when our partners are being difficult or our friends are being difficult oh yeah i recognize that part of that person that's coming out there so we don't totalize the person neither so that's the multiplicity of the mind part the other paradigm you brought together was systems thinking which is again fairly well known among buddhism and other psychotherapies the idea of the interconnectedness or interdependency of everything but the other interesting thing about the IFS is that he kind of like discovered what he calls, he calls it in the model, the self. And, uh, and this is where it gets interesting in this particular model of therapy, because the self in IFS can become equivalent to the various kind of spiritual selves you'll find in, in quite different traditions. Like if you, if you go on the basis of the kind of perennial philosophy kind of tradition where there's only one truth but many different variations of it then all these great religions um, have variations on this theme that there is only one mind there's only really one self and it goes by different names whether that be christ or brahman or buddha nature and so on and so on and uh, so from a buddhist point of view then the uh, this self in ifs is kind of like equivalent to what we would call the uh, the Dharmakaya or Buddha nature in Buddhism. It's it's also what we could also describe as the unborn or an undying self. It's present when we are born and it's, it doesn't go away. It never gets damaged. Um, and uh, on the other hand, this self is obscured in the same way as Buddhist theory talks about it by the fragmentation of the personality into different parts. 
And uh, although this, 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 this having different parts of the personality is normal, when we have severe trauma um, or just developmental trauma, um, it can force the parts into more protective, rigid, or more extreme kind of roles, uh, as well as exiling some parts and compartmentalizing them away so they actually remain outside of consciousness, what you might call in the traumatic unconscious. So in the IFS model, Schwartz talks about protector parts and he talks about exile parts. In other words, parts that are carrying the injuries of the trauma, which he calls exiles, and parts which are protecting the exiles from more trauma, which he calls the protectors. You can have like a managerial protector, which is very controlling, such as in uh, some, some variations of OCD. Or you could have a, um, a protector part that's very impulsive, which when an exile gets triggered in some way and those feelings are beginning to be experienced, the impulsive part rates, races down to the bottle shop to buy a bottle of whiskey and numb ourselves out again. So in a sense then, see all these parts in this model have a seed of the self within them. They have Buddha nature within them, but they are, they are blind to that Buddha nature. And um, they, don't, they do not know their self. They do not know their true self. They are alienated from self. So the job of the therapy is, to, is for the parts to get to know the self and, for, and each other, and for the self to get to witness the parts and to help to heal the parts. So in, if you like, the self has a kind of wisdom function, which we could talk about as the pure awareness, the observing, the witnessing. But it also has its compassionate function in that it can respond to the parts in the same way that a nurturing and loving parent would respond to a child part, for example. I would also add into this model myself what I would call spiritual parts. Um, so, for example, these are parts which I would call play an intermediary role or a bridging role between the parts that Schwartz talks about and the self. So, for example, a seeker part, that seeker part may eventually turn into a, what we call in Zen the way-finding mind or the way-seeking mind. Um, that is a kind of part. And um, we could even think, oh, even the observer and the witness as being parts as well. But I would argue that these, these, the observer or the witness is very close to the self. Um, it might have a thin layering of duality, but it's very close to the self. And in a sense, it, the light of the self shines through the observer. And so the observer, again, is a way of linking to the, uh, the self. And this notion of building, this notion of building a bigger container fits really well as well, because often in Buddhism, we get this notion of the, the Lord of the house or the host 
and uh, the host can be seen as being the self. And most of you know the, probably know the poem by Rumi called The Guest House, but I'll just read it out again because it's quite nice. There are similar metaphors in Buddhism about this as well. So the guest house, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So you get this notion of the self welcoming the parts, welcoming the guests and starting to relate to the parts of the guests. And in the IFS, they often use this metaphor called unblending, which is very similar to what we would call identification. So it's a metaphor for how we identify with parts. We identify with an angry part. We identify with a hurt part. And we perceive and think and feel from the perspective of that part. And the therapy is to help to unblend or separate from the parts so we can actually start to help the parts and the self get to know each other. And over time, the parts get to see that they are also of the self. And uh, the self also helps the bringing the self into the therapy again, like Joko talks about in the bigger container, enables clients to experience the, the shame or the, the fear or the sadness that the child experienced, but in the safety, perhaps of the relationship with the therapist, but also in the sense of the safety that resides in embracing and relaxing into their own self. And, um, and so eventually these exiled parts and uh, protector parts can be changed and transformed through that process. We can see also the self in this model as the source of creativity. Again, it's as in the unborn and undying essence that Buddhism talks about, which cannot be damaged, which is very, very beautiful because many people sometimes get the message when they read about trauma that they're inevitably damaged for the rest of their lives. But in fact, their true self is never damaged and enables the healing process to take place. So the, the model often talks too about self-leadership. So where the self then starts to work with the parts, harmonizing the parts, like we talk about in our Sangha, harmonizing being, that's the Sangha work, harmonizing relationships. And that starts in the microcosm of our personality. Uh, Schwartz calls that self-leadership. He sometimes calls it self-energy. 
I tend to prefer the metaphor of light. I would call it self-light and bringing that light into the, into the personality and then responding compassionately. The role of the therapist is to relate from self to self, from the therapist's self to the client's self, to enable the client to recognize their self. And that's the relational aspect of the therapy. We want the client to find their own true home in their self. So I'll just finish with another poem. Can I be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land? a poem by a guy called Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So now, please, I'd like to open it up for you to share your own experience and thoughts about Zen and psychotherapy either from the perspective of a psychotherapist or from the perspective of a client, or just in general, what your own experiences are or thoughts are about that. I'm feeling a bit stunned, Andrew, so I don't know what to say. I think like the, the Deputy Prime Minister must have felt after Julia Gillard did her misogyny speech, so thank you. That was in very interesting. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jill. Uh, who was it? Was it Reese or who was the other person? Yeah, Reese? yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> it's something that comes up for me a bit when I read, I was, I read the a bigger container chapter a couple of times uh, over the last couple of days. And I think the, and I got, the, I got a similar feeling when I was reading some of the, um, the book on the precepts by, um, Diane Rosetto, this idea of say, when you're angry, when you're feeling anger that you that you move away you know Charles Jacobek's talking about kind of you know step back and witness witness the anger um 
And I kind of feel like that, uh, if I think about that in terms of psychotherapy, I feel like that's good. That's a good practice if you're already at a certain level of integration, you know, but I feel that my, a lot of the reasonable proportion of clients that I work with, I feel like I'm trying to draw, draw out or get, get in touch, help them get in touch with their anger. Yeah. And so, and so I think about this, like this internal family systems, not that I work in this way, but, but it's like, I think for a lot of people, anger and angry self is like an exiled part. It's a part that they're not in touch with. They weren't allowed to be angry when they were kids or, or, or whatever else. So to ad- adopt this practice prematurely, if, if anger is an exiled part, to adopt this practice of like, okay, I'm just going to observe this or witness this, it's like much too premature, I feel, that they would it would be necessary if people are out of touch with anger to first of all, go through a period and, and might be pre- with a therapist where there's like free expression where it's drawn out where they're allowed to express this get in touch with this get to know it and then once it's a kind of an integrated part like in, in the internal family system say once there's some integration once that part's got a place at the table then you might start doing the type of practice that the um joker beck's talking about um so yeah i get i always get these little kind of alarm bells go off especially i think around anger Maybe because I, I, I'm particularly tuned to that or something. I, I don't know, but I got it in the precepts and I got it when I was reading Charlotte Joker Beck. And it's something there about the interplay of therapy where sometimes I think we need to do therapy that, that will look quite different to meditation. Um, and it might be very much about expression and it might be about saying things that you've never said, you've never said before that wouldn't really be a great way to be doing life or doing therapy um yeah it's a thing that comes up for me yeah no i think that's a really important perspective reese and um there are some uh, zen teachers who teach that slightly differently who get into the psychological dimensions a guy called njumpo dennis kelly who developed the mondo koan training has a kind of different approach to anger and yeah i think um there there's always that um risk isn't there of um of bypassing or repressing the anger uh, if we if we move too too early into that, and so lots lots of subtle dimensions and skills that are involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. David, and then Michael. I beat you, Michael. Um, yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a bit hoarse. I was actually, um, yeah, have a drink of water, vocalizing some repressed anger yesterday, quite, quite literally, uh, intentionally. Um, so thanks, Andrew, for that, that talk. As, as often, you've covered a lot. And 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 pull a lot of threads towards each other. Um, I think in quite a, a an intelligent and gentle way. And thank you, Reese. That sort of sp- spoke to something that's been unformed in my mind around um, approaching the readings for this weekend. But 
I think particularly reading the whole Diane Rossetto book sort of been something like, mm, what, what else am I um, aware of in myself that feels important? And I think in my interactions with others and, yeah, including clients. Um, and then I'm also interested just to hear a bit more, Andrew, where you sort of talked about adding on kind of dis different aspects of, of self that I think you said show up through or around the observer, observing practice around wisdom and compassion arising from true self or, or, or getting the, the light of that shining through into those dimensions. And then you said something about adding a spiritual aspect of self and that sort of made sense at the time but when I sort of look back at it or try and think back at it, I, I haven't really been able to integrate what you were saying there um, so if you if you've felt able to say a bit more to sort of round it come around it in a different way yeah thanks uh, thank you David and um, I hope the um, getting in touch and expressing your your anger was helpful the other day <laughs> Um, um, yeah, so in, in the actual model of I, the IFS internal family systems model, um, they, they basically talk about two different categories of parts, protector parts and exile parts. And they, they divide the protector parts up into managerial protectors and uh, impulsive protectors. But I think that um, in relate, and then and then they talk about the self. Um, but I think it needs a bit of an intermediary, a little bit of a bridge. I think that's from my understanding. So I was thinking in terms of the seeker, um, the way seeking mind, um, even the observer or the witness, um, actually being parts as well. Which build okay. a bridge, which which are closer in alignment with the self. They're much more unblended. Think of blending as a kind of think of the like um, a circle with with a with 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 a half of it, you know, coloured in and the other half white. That's like being fifty percent blended. So um, the process is that. Um, uh, for the the parts to become progressively more unblended and and more integrated with the self yeah. mm. so the the observer the seeker play a, i think an important function in uh in in building that bridge not quite sure how i would how i would i mean that's just a just a exploratory thoughts really yeah no very interested so, so it arises out of you seeing a gap in integrated family systems yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. coverage of the yeah yeah parts of self and and the sort of true absolute self or something yeah but yeah I mean 
there was another methodology called voice dialogue, which quite a few Zen teachers use as well, which was developed by this person called a uh, husband and wife called Stone, forget their first names, who were kind of Jungian trained and developed this kind of voice dialogue technique, which um, a, a Zen teacher in the Mazumi lineage called Genpo Roshi took up as well. He formed this training called Big Heart, Big Mind, which uses a voice, voice dialogue technique in a very similar way, which is in some ways similar to internal family systems, but it's, it's much more sort of um, in, a, in a Zen language. Mm. Could, could you characterize you. the parts in um, IFS as relating to, uh, you know, emotional states that you can actually identify, or is that too simplistic? No, no, no. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, you could you could characterize them in all those kinds anger, of things. Yeah. It's kind of like a self state or a sub personality, or it could be anger. You could you could simplify it and just have an angry state, but there'd be some thoughts in that angry state as well as and uh, and there'd be maybe a particular perspective in that anger state and so on. So getting to know the the anger state, getting to empathize with the anger state. Uh, in that way, yeah. I mean, just just reflecting what Rhys was saying, I think that that the that ability or that developing that capacity, the bigger container, to be able to um, just in my own experience in you know decades of therapy, um, it's just so difficult when you're in these um, you know you're you're sort of locked in these uh, uh, emotional um uh mind states that you've you've been practicing you know that you're so used to those states that to find that 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 other um these larger perspectives to be able to enable you to kind of mentalize those states is really difficult when you you're kind of automatically going into the just locking in and fusing with the the um or blending with these emotional states you know it can be really difficult i think for the people to kind of, as we said, to develop that capacity. So, Yeah, I mean, it's even difficult for realizers and masters. I mean, how much more difficult is it going to be for the ordinary Joe Blow? Uh, did you want to say something else, Richard? I just, just well, I suppose just to um, briefly say that I'm coming from a client perspective, I guess, yeah. but... Uh, and, um, you know, I've, I've sort of been with different therapists over, as I say, over about 30 years. And um, it's been, uh, you know, I found some approaches more helpful than others. And I think it's really about the individual's um, experience of uh, their own, you know, dukkha or whatever, um, or, or their experience of their trauma or their attachment or you know their conditioning or whatever you want to call it it's like it's about finding um what works for different people i guess you know? richard can i ask you from um, a client perspective i mean from a client perspective have, have you found yourself integrating your zen practice with your psychotherapy yeah i, I guess it's really helped um, uh, but I, I think it was something that I'd embarked on 
without really having any understanding of it in the in the way that we're talking about it now you know like i mean I, what what brought me to my um practice was really just uh i was looking for a way out of my suffering really you know my my, my uh neuroses i just wanted to find a little bit of uh relief you know some relief so it was kind of out of desperation almost that i that i started sitting many years ago yeah 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 and then it yeah and um and i, I didn't see it in relationship to my therapy at all really until mm. until uh, more recently um, yeah. yeah look there's a really nice in that chapter a bigger container she ends with a really nice paragraph i just want to read that because it's really nice it goes Remember also that, that a little humour about all this isn't a bad idea. Essentially, we never get rid of anything. We don't have to get rid of all our neurotic tendencies. What we do is to begin to see how funny they are. And then they're just part of the fun of life, the fun with living with other people. They're all crazy. And so are we, of course. But we never really see that we are crazy. That's our pride. Of course, I'm not crazy after all. I'm the teacher. <laughs> yeah. So you can keep some of your neurotic tendencies and have fun with them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll go to Michael next and then Pingala. Um, just let me know if this is uh, a bit hard to hear or broken up. I'll speak more directly. But um, thanks, Andrew. I, I really think you pretty much said it all. You know, um, but just from a, a personal side, um, really, the the only reason I'm, I got into therapy was as a, a direct direct um, progression from my own misery. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, uh, uh, an amazing place to be to actually work with another human being to be together, um, working on, you know, whatever it is that um, is part of someone else's suffering. And I'm only, I'm only any use. Um, through reference to my own suffering really and maybe having some sort of perspective on that it helps me inform what i'm doing and uh why i was attracted to self-psychology in the first place was um that it took people's problems out from just being internal but something to do with the intersubjective interrelatedness that they live in and that that was so liberating and that's the link that i find with zen you know so there's 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 almost like a bigger container for looking at um it, well it is a it is a bigger container for the the psych, psychotherapeutic work yeah um what i think the Zen way of doing psychotherapy or like 
you know, reading Barry's books, I think he's right onto it. Maybe it's not stated, but I, I feel there's more that can be said about transference. Uh, you know, it's referred to as maybe a problem that can come up with teacher and student or whatever, but I think there's far more how, uh, that we can draw from the notions of transference about how our how our inner worlds are structured around experiences that we can't necessarily see. You know, it's the tiger, tiger in the bamboo that we struggle with. Um, just quickly, Michael, could you just, could but, you just uh, summarize what transference means for everybody? Just to... Well, for me, for me, from from the way I understand intersubjectivity. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll directly reference the work of Donna Orange, who you'd be familiar with. Um, tra transference is, is, uh, is, is, is the whole bunch of uh, unconsciously internalized or developed organizing principles that, you know, we, we see the world as a given rather than being a contingently created um, kind of illusion, I guess, in a way we could say, yeah. So, you know, from moment by moment experience from the very earliest time of our existence, how we soak up and somehow form pictures of, oh, this is the world from sort of little, little snippets of experience coming together. And especially when... Um, we talk about those experiences before we have autobiographical memory. Those um, those ways of oh, this is what it's like with another person. This is what intimacy is like. We can form impressions and expectations. Yeah. So without we knowing. Where both, the hell we got them from? Yeah. We both we both could be unconscious or blind to our transferences. So if it was me and you in a therapeutic relationship or even a relationship, we could be having transferences happen, but we might not be aware of those transferences. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but it's it's like this. It's like an automatic. This is how it is. It's like yeah, like. Um, and we can have different islands of experience where when we're in this particular constellation with someone or a group, it's almost like this is how it is, automatic without realizing, oh, this is this is a tra traumatic construct or something like that. It's it's hidden. It's hidden to how we've come to feel or be or or what we're afraid of. Um yeah, kind of bits that we've developed about how the world is that we're just, you know, opaque to. Yeah, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Andrew, I think you could just leave the if. Oh, I, I see that as... What you said. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, David, what? Right. I was just, just making an observation when what you said there was great and I think you could, you could leave the if. If we were in a relationship, then we'd be, you know, we. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens all the time. It's, it's, it's. Yep. Yeah.
It's how it is. Good. So it would be helpful for um, Zenti yep, well to have some, some, some understanding of that, right? Stands to reason. Okay. Uh, well, Michael's gone. Pingala, do you want to? Pingala, do you want to go? Yes, 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 I'm here. I'm just getting lost in that <laughs> that moment, that concept of transference. And I guess that's where the Zen perspective is able to bring clarity um, or this perspective of self. I, I've, I've worked with parts um, quite a lot and I find it interesting and helpful to take the time when something comes up to actually sit with it and try to gain some perspective in, um, from the self. So, but that, that sometimes takes time and care, personal care, rather than just continue it along with, with what is um, in my agenda for the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, not all of us have that luxury <laughs> to yeah. take that time. To go inside. To go in and look and, and, and feel what's going on and relate to those parts of self. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's really common in our culture to really we just, we're constantly like monkeys, like, you know, looking outside all the time at all the objects out there somewhere. And plus, of course, it's all them. They're the blame as well. So it's always like pointing externally and we don't have a culture which encourages to go inside very much i mean i guess you know people even talk about psychoanalysis as being a dinosaur you know something which is going to be extinct very soon it's unfortunate we don't have a very culture which is more inwardly directed and and it's interesting I have a close friend who who's, who's doesn't practice as a psychotherapist work um, with a Jungian perspective. She believed she was getting nowhere with her clients without a spiritual perspective. Interesting. Or an internal perspective. Yeah. I, I guess you could interpret that yeah. as being. So you you could derive from that that it, there's a need for that extra dimension which is the dimension of the self you know with my own processes i actually go into many spiritual um, connections which i find also encourages the strength and that's been a perspective for me for some time is to to encourage to develop nourish my strength of self um, to give me a core to work with these parts of myself, which um, which are difficult, which get in the way of a happy life. Simple. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Pingala. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, I 
think you, you made the comment before, Andrew, about like you go in some Asian teachers, there, there would not be this psychological perspective. Um, and I can think back to my early my earlier experience of doing meditation, like doing um, Vipassana retreats, like the Goenka Vipassana retreats, and then and then meditating over in Asia. And I, even though there was, there is some psychological perspective in the Vipassana retreats, I found I have this kind of residual leftover, like anger or disappointment at those early experiences I had, because I felt like in some ways, the psychological aspects just, just weren't addressed. The solution was often just like, go back and feel the sensations. I mean, in the Goenka technique, it's just like all this, all this crazy shit's coming up, all this emotion all this difficult stuff just go back and feel go back and feel feel the sensations um and i have and a bit of a similar kind of similar approach in other in other um traditions that or the the, the inside traditions um and i guess it it makes me think of like what what i was bringing or what all of us i imagine would bring is I feel that we're bringing like really therapeutical, therapeutic or psychological subjectivities. Like we are deeply influenced right down into our self-understandings by these ideas, by the ideas of psychotherapy, by the ideas of um, of psychotherapy, I guess, um, and 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 psychology. It's like ourselves, the way that we understand ourselves, are, are so permeated by those ideas that we go to these Asian practices and they have a very different subject to a very different sense of like what a self is and how you would understand a self. And it just doesn't resonate. I mean, it just, I mean, maybe it does for some people, but I think for a lot of people, it just, it doesn't resonate. So in some ways I feel maybe this is a fourth turning of the wheel, but maybe it also it's just like this, this, like um, meditation, spiritual practice, Buddhism mixed with with psychotherapy is just what people like us need because that's how we understand ourselves. If that makes sense, it's just like it's the right it's the right approach for people who have subjectivities like us that were yeah. created in a therapeutic environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's I, I I think the cultural context and the institutional context of some of these practices which were imported into the West from a different cultural and institutional context are often not appropriate for Westerners. Yeah. That's all. Thank you. Uh, Mari and then Jack. Andrew, I was just wondering, <clears throat> because of the time difference, when is my appointment this afternoon? <laughs> in your time, in my time or your time? Oh, I'll um, I'll send you a text afterwards. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for that talk. It was overwhelming, really. <laughs> so much to take in. And, yeah. I wish I could remember every word, but I can't. But anyway, it was very... Do you have to, Mari, do you have anything to add from your um, your Christian perspective to the discussion? Well, I just find that it's quite quite different, you know. All this um, I always have this problem, you know, integrating the two. Yeah. 
Although, about um, I'm limited in how I can um, sort of um, integrate them. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk about that with some more then. But, um, yeah. There's, there's, there's no reason why you can't. No, well, I've, I've just accepted this is that I really enjoy doing this and then I enjoy my. Yeah. Have you got that book by Thich Nhat Hanh on Buddhism and Christianity? Yeah, I do. Oh, you have it. Okay. Yeah, I like I like the way he approaches that, and so I just accept that there's a lot of similarities, and, um, and it's okay. on one level it's very hard to integrate them. Then on the other level, it's very easy. So, and I and I think um, well, just to be with it all and accept it, and I. I just don't worry about it anymore. You know? okay. Okay. Thanks, Murray. That's great. Okay. It's experience each moment as it is. Yeah. Okay. Good. Jack. Yeah. Um. Thanks so much, everyone. And it's really, it's really nice to hear. You know, the people who have therapists here giving their different, um, you know, take on these these things. It's really helpful. Um. I've done stacks of um, therapy and um, the first time I was probably 16 and, um, you know, it's been like talking therapy mostly. And um, I have, um, it's really, it's, it's, you know, being really necessary. I found it really necessary um, just really to survive. Um, and I don't know of any other way really to come to terms with, you know, the exiled parts of yourself. It's, you know, the parts of yourself that are so, so hard to experience, you know, painful things and bits of yourself you don't like and all that sort of thing. And um, I can't even imagine coming to um, Zen practice or Vipassana or whatever without a crap ton of therapy actually <laughs> and you're like we are so complex like I love the way you put that Michael you know that like we have all this complicated stuff inside us and it's like from you know when you know before we even had any order by could make any autobiographical sense of things um that's influencing us all the time um and uh you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, we don't, so, you know, the way we're behaving and how we're responding to things, you know, we see that, but we don't necessarily see the deep underlying um, causes of that. Um, so, you know, um, I mean, both, both therapy and Buddhism for me, um, in a, in a really practical sense, um, has helped me to see patterns, you know, like thinking patterns that are unhelpful um, that I'm attached to, right? And they both they both look at that, and that's huge. Um, and I'm practicing Vipassana as well, and so uh, in Goenka quite a lot. So I I know we're you know Reese's perspective there and everyone I know who does those retreats goes they don't tell us what to do with our thoughts and emotions and da 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 um 
for me, it had the real advantage of actually connecting with my body for the first time in my life. Like, because they, you know, you, you're constantly studying the sensations in your body. Um, but then they sell, they kind of sell it as the be all and end all. And part of the problem with Buddhism is everyone sells what they do as the be all and end all. <laughs> you know, and sort of criticizes these other techniques and stuff. And that's just ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous for any spiritual tradition to be criticizing other spiritual traditions and, you know, we, we've got the method, we've got the special method, we know what to do sort of thing. On that point, Jackie, it's interesting because I think there is a tendency more so now in the West that there's a kind of also, a, I think, a helpful um, dialogue and, and coming together of the different Buddhist traditions, which wasn't the case before. I think, yeah. that's, I think that's rather helpful, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really good. And actually, um, someone just told me the other day um, how one of the, you know, there's these um, scholar monks, Pali scholars who, who know all about the Pali canon and that sort of thing. Um, you know, um, a couple of them who are highly respected sort of saying, well, I kind of like Mahayana Buddhism as well. And Anali and, and Analia, he's he's very well respected. So sort of saying, oh, I'm quite into Tibetan Buddhism actually. And uh, and if something's useful, I'm not I'm not gonna just rigidly say, no, it has to come from the Pali canon. If it's useful, it's useful, sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. So someone like that, you know, um, one of those really traditional Theravada monks saying they're into tibetan buddhism is kind of nice yeah. you know? and i think in the west we're more open to that because we don't have the cultural history with the tradition as, as well so that gives us more capacity to um to you know be like that yeah anyway blah, blah, blah. <laughs> phil phil I just thought I'd um, bring in a slightly different perspective. First of all, I don't really consider myself to be spiritual or religious, so I'm not sure where that leaves me. But anyway, I just thought I'd put that out there. Um, I do like Zen, obviously, because I've been doing it for a while. I've never, I've never engaged in psychotherapy either. Uh, I once went to a counsellor, I think I had two sessions many, many years ago when I was having a really difficult relationship breakup, but I have not really any in-depth experience of counselling whatsoever. So I guess, I guess at times I've found the interface that Andrew, you've spoken about quite a bit, a, a, bit, a bit hard to comprehend because there's a lot of terminology, models and ideas in psychotherapy as well as in Zen that are complex. So while I appreciate the depth of the knowledge that you're presenting to us and your scholarship and, and your attention to detail, I do find at times I get a bit lost in, well, I guess if I was, if I was to label myself as anything, I'm pretty pragmatic about the world. What I'm really interested in is, well, how do I work with this? Because I've got issues like everyone. You know, I haven't been to therapy, but, you know, I've got issues with things like anger and I've had my, you know, pretty good crack at substance abuse at different times. So, you know, I've, I've, and I still think those issues are 
using the words you you know you shared with us, like probably some of those are exiled. I don't really know because I haven't really worked with it. So I'm just I guess I'm encouraging you and and now and your other people in our sangha who have experience in these things to try to I don't know what the right word is bring it out more and make it a bit more tangible and and more practical. But yeah, it's just an observation. I just found find at times I sort of if I get too overloaded with the information, I tend to shut down a bit and I start looking for something simple to latch on to. Um, so, yeah, that's just a bit of feedback. Thank you, Phil. Yeah. Um, I acknowledge that uh, I perhaps sometimes try to cover too much in these talks um, and it, it can get a bit... Uh, too much detail, maybe. I'll, I'll try and keep them a bit shorter in future. Um, yeah, it's not so, yeah, I know it's not a criticism, Andrew. It's probably, I think a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is like I've worked, as you know, my background is in science and I have a whole lot of theories and other things in my head around ecology, for example. But a lot of my professional life is about trying to translate that into fixing stuff up, you mm. know, damaged ecosystems or whatever, you know. Mm. things that were going extinct how do you how do you bring them back from the brink yeah yeah and i've found that it's actually sometimes the theory can just get in the way in the end you've got to try things you know it's a lot of things really get resolved by trial and error that's what i found in, my, in real life mm. so i kind of look at zen sometimes as like it's got it has a lot more theory than i ever expected it, it the buddhism in particular has a lot of stuff in there that's like you just think, yeah, that's interesting, but what use is it? You know, is, so what? Um, I'm a bit like that's a bit like how I am. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's important to have someone like you in the Sangha, Phil. And um, you know, with our ongoing collaboration, I mean that kind of feedback and, and those kind of questions are really important. And uh, so it's like, you know, Andrew, how can you actually express this differently or simply or more accessibly? that's understandable. Those kinds of questions are really helpful and important. And you know that um, that's the kind of work we, I'm very open to working together with you on, um, on these particular topics that we, we, we're trying to put together, you know, in terms of the talks and the whatever writings we have on the website and on all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, no, that's good. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. I, I, I understand that you are really open to all of this I, I just thought I'd share it no Sometimes no, I've, no you're yeah. probably not the you're probably not the only person who feels and thinks that way so it's it's good to get it out there yeah it's so it's kind of like the um the Zen for dummies perspective a bit from me you know like well, what what does this stuff really mean you know that that's kind of how I look at the world a bit yeah I mean, just a, just a quick question before we, we finish. Like, how how do you find reading Joko? Joko Beck. Me personally. Yeah. yeah look, I I thought Joko. I've probably read Joko's books. Um, the two books. What is it? Every day, day Zen, and um, what's the other one anyway? I've probably read them a couple of times over the years, at least, and I've read bits and pieces in, as well at different times. I, I think. I think she's a really good communicator and a lot of her ideas um, seem intuitive. 
So, and I've have worked with um, thought labeling and experiencing sensations in the body a fair bit. I think what's missing a little bit though is the next step. And I, I think Jack raised it. It's like, well, you know, you can, you can, you can see your patterns of thought, you can experience things as body sensations, but where does it sort of lead you next? You know, like sometimes I think there's a missing step in there about, well, how do you apply that in your everyday life? And I, and I think it's hard for a teacher to explain that because it's probably different for everyone, the, the context they're in and their experience of life. So I think she's really good and it's helped me understand Zen, I think, in lots of ways. But I, I still think there's bits missing because you probably had to be working with her directly to really understand where she was coming from. Sure. Okay. I think that direct, I've probably, I think I've mentioned this just to, so I'm taking a lot of time here, but I think it's working with people directly that really makes a big difference. Yeah, that's why, that's why the, like, yeah. the, I mean, if, 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 if one is not attending therapy sessions, then in the Zen tradition, you only have this, it's usually like 15 or 20 minutes, what they call the Dokusan, or the private interview. And, um, like she used to schedule those once a fortnight. People would ring in and talk to her from sometimes from overseas for 15 or so minutes on the telephone. And uh, her approach to those interviews was very psychological. Um, and um, um, and, and that, that's kind of like a in-between kind of, I mean, you, you can go much, much, you know, spend more time and go much deeply if you're doing like a, an hour of psychotherapy every week or two hours of psychotherapy every week. But, um, but the next best thing though, in terms of working, integrating the psychological perspective with the Zen perspective is to, to do those regular sort of shorter meeting yeah. with the Zen teacher. That's where it comes together more. Yeah. You need, you need that one-on-one -on -one relationship. 